0: Hi, this is Steve. Jumping in before our exploration of Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained with a brief warning. Just as with our deep dive on Reservoir Dogs, we have chosen not to censor or bleep out the use of racial slurs like the N-word. And since Django deals with slavery, there are frankly far more incidents of racially insensitive language than there are in his other films. We understand that this subject matter and the language that goes with it can be deeply troubling for many people, but we feel it's important to present the director's work as he intended. And now we bring you part one of our discussion of Django Unchained.
1: How do you like the bounty hunting
2: business? Kill white folks and they pay you for it? What's not to like? <laughs>
0: Hello, and welcome once again to the Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
3: Hello, everyone. My name is uh, John Rocha. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California. Also, run the Outlaw Nation outlet. And, um, you know, we have been doing our season of Tarantino. Uh, we've been knee deep into this, Steve, and we are walking into. One of um, his most recent films that has left quite an impression on a number of people here as we talk, Django Unchained. And we are joined for this conversation through the numerous parts that it's going to go for a two hour and 45 minute movie here by actor, director, writer, comedian. Uh, You might have seen him recently in in, uh, um, American Gigolo on Showtime. He's been uh, killing it on stage in numerous cities. And also, he is one third of the Black, uh, I don't know, is it Black Boy Content Club? Is that That's what it is? That's exactly what it is. And he's also just retired from a, also a, a decades-long career in professional wrestling. And of course, he's a pundit and movie critic as well. And one we've—a uh, gentleman we've had on the show before Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the great Jay Washington back to the Cinephiles. How are you, Jay?
2: I'm, I'm great. Thank you, both John and Steve, for having me. I do want to say with that introduction, I was about to start looking around, like, who in the hell is you he talking about? Because <laughs> this is this is this is a mighty qualified person to be Come here, on but, now. But Come thank on. you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, as always, I love talking this, talking with you guys, especially going deep into different movies and their themes and everything of the sort that you guys do. And I am a Tarantino fan, you know, a lot of people will get kind of weird. to be like, how are you a Tarantino fan? I'm like, look, I know he has an uncanny use to use the word that shouldn't be used in certain scenes. Because <laughs> I just re- recently watched Reservoir Dogs and I was like, it, there's no point right here. It's certain <laughs> times they say, like, there's no point. But I remember watching it. And, uh, and so to talk this movie, I definitely am a fan of Django. So that definitely means a lot to me. Yeah, cool. Do you remember how you first came to it? I remember seeing the trailer for it. Uh, again, this movie dropped Christmas of 2012. So I remember seeing the trailer for it, and I was still living in Chicago, and I was like, I'm going to see this. And I went to the theater to see this on Christmas. Uh, I think I went, like, the day after Christmas or something, because I couldn't go Christmas, direct, you know, day, because I had a kid. I'm mean, a kid at the time, a three-year-old. But I went the day after Christmas or so to see it in movies. And I was like, oh, oh. Why does Rick Ross have a song on his soundtrack? <laughs> that's one of the biggest. I think more than anything else, that was probably my biggest thing. But um, there was so much because I was like, this is a Western, which is set in slavery, which is like a lot of people forget if you look at actual Westerns, they are literally going on during slavery times. So it fit. And then also the controversy with Spike Lee being upset about it. And I was like, why are you upset about a movie? during slavery that uses the n-word like i can understand some of tarantino's other films i get it Mm -hmm. but when you're talking about a movie during slavery that word is as prevalent as the word the and so having seen it i did like it you know I'm saying you know i was telling steve and phil and i had about it with a certain character we'll get into more in depth but i love the cast i love how they did it i do feel like there was somebody that could have been anybody in this film but it's a great movie to me and i've watched it repeatedly John,
0: how did you first come to Django Unchained? I'm pretty sure I saw it with some of our
3: friends. You know, I I am also for, even with my issues with Tarantino, with some of the decisions he makes, wanting to involve himself in some moments uh, with his films, I have always enjoyed and loved his movies and look forward to seeing what we were going to get from his movies. And when I saw the trailer for this, because, you know, Jamie Foxx is an interesting actor because I didn't think he was that great in Collateral, even though people love him in Collateral, but I loved him in Ray, and I've seen him in other things and obviously in Living Color, but this was something else. This was like so interesting to see him taking the lead of a film like this. The fact that the film was almost three hours long, which people knew about ahead of time, the fact that it's a Western and full disclosure like the uh, the something we studied in school something that struck me since i was a child was the inhumane treatment of slavery right this inhumane treatment of black people in that we brought over here in slavery so it was hitting it was checking all the boxes for me and it's a ve- revenge film that makes it even more exciting And it's based on these – It's the name Django, of course, comes from those 1970s films that Franco Nero starred in as Django. So this checked so many boxes for me that I couldn't wait to see it, and I was just absolutely blown away by what we got in this movie. And Tarantino's ability to walk or seem to tap dance or skip through minefields throughout this entire movie and somehow come out mostly unscathed by the end of the film – and reaffirmed DiCaprio, reaffirmed Samuel L. Jackson, reaffirmed Jamie Foxx and Kerry Washington as fantastic actors while also weaving in 80s icons like Don Johnson and Tom Wolpat from Dukes of Hazard, and even Dennis Christopher, who I know from Chariots of Fire. So just kind of crazy to see the amount of people he was able to mix into this film and make it all work. And so it's a film that I love going back to and I'm excited to jump into it, especially with Jay, who I've never talked with about this film. So I'm very curious to hear what Jay has to say about it as well.
0: So for me, this movie came out in 2012. My child came out in 2011, which <laughs> began in the, the, the decade-long time of me not going to see movies in a theater that I'm just really trying to crawl out of now post-pandemic. So I did not see this in the theater. Karen and I watched it. You know when it came out on home video and i think it was over three nights with a baby waking up in the middle and putting him down and so my first watching of it was kind of like what the fuck was that <laughs> you know <laughs> like just like this it's uber cool it's uber violent oh my kid woke up again <laughs> you know like i had to deal with that and it's funny because and i hadn't seen it since so i would watched it once you know somewhere in 2012 on home video and then I've just really been deep into it over the last, you know, few weeks. And there's a lot here. And I will say right now, you know, we did Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. I, as a Jewish man, had a very strong reaction, very mixed, complicated reaction to it. My reaction to this movie is actually fairly similar in, in a lot of weird ways, although it's, I think this is a cooler movie. But I also feel less justified and you know as a jewish guy talking about a movie that deals with the holocaust i felt more comfortable as a jewish guy i feel a little like like my opinion isn't as key i would say on this one but i still have that weird mix of this is amazing it is super cool the acting is great the violence is incredibly filmed it is just you know everything that quentin tarantino is great at and then the revenge stuff makes me go it's weird. There's a weirdness to the film in the same way I have a weirdness with *Inglorious Bastards, in the same way
3: I have a weirdness with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I guess that's what I'd say. That's fair enough. Uh, and, And before we dive into the movie, Steve, I think we should take a moment to talk about our Patreon. For those of you who are members of our Patreon, we want to thank you very, very much for supporting our show. All these years, the new people who've come on to the Patreon has been fantastic. See how many people responded to our calls to get more and more support here on the show. We're providing more uh, benefits for your dollar. We got you watch-alongs. We're doing extra shorts. Uh, we're doing the. We're getting great people like Jay Washington to come on to the show. There's so much happening here of, uh, for your buck as you support um, uh, the cinephiles on Patreon. We would uh, encourage you all who have enjoyed us and listened to us. We've got hundreds of thousands of people who listen to us every month to go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash the cinephiles and look at a tier and these benefits that work for you. And don't be shy about reaching out to us and let us know what's going to make you want to jump up to a next tier or or what benefit you'd like to see that would motivate you to go to the top tier in your support of the cinephiles. We want to make a concerted effort to get more and more people on board because we want to take this show – to more and more next levels. And we can only do that through your support. So please consider joining us on the Patreon and selecting a tier that works for you. Testify, Mr. Roka, that is (laughs) well said, sir. Uh, I have a little
0: bit of pre-production, not actually a ton. We did mention when we did our sort of deep dive of just Quentin's life, that there were a bunch of people, particularly African-American men, who he knew as a kid who took him out to movie theaters and took him to see exploitation films and to see action films. And the most influential, and I'll just tell the story again is this guy, Buddy Floyd, who probably dated his mom. He's a 37 year old man and was definitely taking care of Quentin and was a huge movie fan. And this guy was writing screenplays and he wrote two screenplays. I'm just going to bring them up again. The yeah. first was called The Mysterious Mr. Black, which was the story of a vengeful spirit of a, formal sla- a former slave targeting wealthy defend- descendants of slave owners. <laughs> and the second was, called, uh, was a Western ca- about a character named Billy Spencer, who was a black cowboy adopted by a white family, raised by white brothers, and taught to be a bounty hunter. Mm. So... Now, Quentin says that there is nothing in Django that directly comes out of either of these movies. But there's no doubt that this guy, uh, Floyd, was a huge influence on him coming up. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. You can hear it. Look, the spirit of a former slave. Look, first of all, I need that movie in my life. Right? I'm not going to lie. I need that movie. But the bounty hunter part, there's no way you can't tell me that that's not. You know, because again, it's in, it's seen here, and then if you go further into the hateful eight, so like bounty hunters, yeah. black bounty hunters are big things. So you he can't say knowing this history, knowing what you just said, Steve, he can't say
0: that he wasn't influenced by that. Absolutely, there's also, and this is, you know, I I, I try to do research at Wikipedia and different places, and multiple times I saw this reference to the real Django. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe that this particular thing is bullshit and did not inspire Quentin Tarantino. And what I know about Quentin I found nothing where Quentin talks about this guy. But Mm -hmm. there was a guy named Dangerfield Newby who was a freed slave who spent much of his time raising money to purchase his wife and his family from their slave owner. And at the last minute, the uh, owner doubled the price. And so suddenly all the hard work he had done to purchase his family didn't work, and so he joined John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry to start the rebellion uh, right before the Civil War, and he was killed at Harper's Ferry. Mm. Now, this sounds like an amazing story, and maybe one that does deserve a movie, but I can't find any evidence that Quentin knew anything about this guy, even (laughs) though people are saying this is the real Django. Oh, interesting. It's I, think, I mean
2: it's, and this, I think it's just I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt Steve. but I think it's you could take he takes a bit of here, there, a little bit of everything instead of saying this one particular thing right. influenced him.
3: Yeah. Well,
0: it frankly, my feeling about Quentin Tarantino is he is way more influenced by movie history than he is mm. by actual history. I mean the you know, the the influence of the spaghetti western and in particular, of course. Oh. As you mentioned, John, the film Django yeah. has a lot more to do with where this movie comes from than actual history. You know,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. it starts development on in 2007. He actually the, the movie Django is uh, directed by Sergio Corbucci. It's a spaghetti Western and Tarantino apparently was tra- starting to write a book on Corbucci. I don't think he ever wrote it, hmm. uh, but that's when he started talking about this idea of a deep South spaghetti Western that he called a Southern And his quote is, he said, I want to do a movie that deals with America's horrible past with slavery and stuff, but do them like spaghetti Westerns, not like big issue movies. Hmm. The slavery and stuff line is what always (laughs) jumps out at me. There's other things American has horrible history. You know, slavery and stuff. You know, know. Um, so he finishes the script in 2011, sends it off to the Weinstein Company um, I don't think we're going to go into the Weinstein's very much. <laughs> um, That's a separate start. movie. Casting started in 2011, and from what I have read, the person this movie was originally written for was Will Smith.
2: Yep.
3: Yes. Yes. I remember? That. Yep. Yeah.
0: This is what I read. This doesn't make sense to me, but what I read was that Will Smith turned it down because he didn't feel Django was really the lead. If you look at it, it, it doesn't seem like when you sit back and think, it seems like Christoph Walsh's character is more the lead. Mm. Well I guess if you're line counting, you know, like if you if you go by who has the most dialogue, Django definitely doesn't. Right. And then the next person they went to apparently was Michael K. Williams. Wow, Michael Ooh. Kenneth. Damn. Ooh. Right? That's that. a, that's that's something
2: I would have loved to have seen. hmm Oof.
0: I think there's a darkness and intensity of that movie that isn't in this movie.
3: Yeah. You know, that's a different combination. Also, I heard that the Will Smith situation was also because Will didn't want to play a slave. That's why. That's why Emancipation was a big deal when he finally did it. Yep. It's why, yeah, that's why it was a big surprise when he played it in Emancipation. He'd been the first time because he'd always resisted. it, And, And I understand that, you know, when I, when, when I came to Hollywood, I made a very big deal that I was never going to play a valet or a gardener or any of these stereotypes and so for will maybe he felt playing a slave wasn't the thing you want to do with his career so he stayed away from it and that i think that was one also one of the reasons why he turned it down
2: i want to raise my hand to something real yes, quick and, inter- and interject a small joke real quick so what you're trying to say <laughs> about my career john because i have played a thug a couple of times. <laughs> a bit of <laughs> we all, all want different paths, man. We all want different paths. We all walk different paths. I didn't, I didn't know you could. <laughs> no, but I get it when it comes to like not wanting to play a slave and not wanting to play those certain stereotypical roles, right. especially where it seems like that's all they want to cast you for. And because yeah. but it also depends on what you can do with said role. Right, right. You know, right. I, I feel as an actor, you know, you get a role. You take it and you make it your own and you can add something to it, especially when you're a star, the level of Will Smith, a star, the level of Jamie Foxx. Because if you look at Jamie Foxx, look at how Django is. Mm -hmm. Django isn't a dumb slave for all intents and purposes. Django has a strong vocabulary. He's learning to read easily. Think he's very adaptable to things as opposed to what history has shown and said in many cases about some slaves now there are slaves we've learned that have been great intellects we've learned so much but the characters i'm talking about being portrayed. so would will smith he could have made more of that and again he just chose to take the character from emancipation and show it in its full in its full whatever it is full splendor if you will
3: might have also been um, that he didn't want to do it for a white director and, you know, having to doing it finally for a black director in Emancipation, that might have been something that affected him at the time as well.
0: There's also the thing that I think Will Smith and recent events totally aside. Mm. He very carefully was managing his brand. Oh, for sure. F- yeah. From the beginning. hundred percent. And my brain also just went to 1999's Wild West, which oh, is God. kind of the same era. Which he chose that over the Matrix yes he did yes he did that's just he was supposed to for
2: those who are listening he was supposed to be neo
3: yeah there's a great like four or five minute video on youtube where he talks about why he turned down the matrix and if you haven't seen this video you must watch this video because it wasn't like the Wachowskis came and gave him this incredible presentation it was quite the opposite the way he tells it it was quite the opposite so Here's a totally bizarre casting thing. There was apparently
0: a character called Ace Woody, who was the quote unquote Mandingo trainer. And this character was a big enough part that Kevin Costner was signed to play it. And then Kevin had, had scheduling thing and he had to step down. So now Kurt Russell is brought in to play this part. Oh, wow. And then Kurt Russell also had to drop out and then Quentin just took all the lines and gave it, spread them around to various other characters, including, you know, the Walter Walter Goggins, Billy Crash character. Mm. But it's just so bizarre. Like, those are big actors, you know, like it couldn't have been a small part to have them consider it.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, you could tell again, Kurt Russell, you could tell he regretted it because he turned around and did the Hateful Eight. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Good point. He he turns around to be John Ruth in Hateful Eight. Yeah. Kevin Costner we haven't seen I don't know if he's ever done a Tarantino film as much as I can think of so
0: and I can't picture him in one by the way that doesn't seem like where he should be <laughs> to me. Yeah, yeah I think that that would so be a also. weird mix cuz Kevin's um, very alpha this is a $100 million budget, which is, I think, the biggest uh, budget for a Tarantino film up to this time. And strangely enough, and I have no information on why this is the case, this is the only the second time in his career that Lawrence Bender is not a producer on Django. Mm. But I don't know why. I don't have any information other than that he's just not there. Mm. And that is all my pre-production, which you'd like to roll into the movie. Let's do it. Um, we hear guitar over these desert rocks and we hear the Django song which is Luis Bakalov and Rocky Roberts and we have credits in the camera hands down to see slaves marching and being whipped and there's we focus in on Jamie Foxx and it's already a pretty brutal beginning I think what they did for his look in this opening scene is they did it beautifully, I'll say, Mm. for something as brutal as what it is.
2: It shows you the horrors of slavery by a couple of shots, not just them being marched through what looked like mountainous terrain and whatnot, but to show the shackles on their feet. Yeah. You know, seeing them shackled and whatnot. And again, as a black man who's heard about the stories, who's read about them, who's always still studying about them, you know, to have it on film, I know a lot of people like, oh, it's it's black trauma porn. And this is before that term comes out.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And it it, it takes a director. You know, there's a a variety of directors that could have done it. But to sit there and say, hey, you know how everyone loves this one particular genre of film? I'm going to let you know that this was happening, too. Yeah and that speaks and that speaks volumes just to be willing to do that because you run the risk of a lot of backlash not from primarily the black community but from others who are western fans who yeah. are like I don't want to see this but it's like no the time period in which you love this is literally going on yeah
0: well and honestly from you know westerns John that you and I have done but like yeah. a bunch of the heroes and villains of westerns are people coming out of the civil war you know whether or not it's john wayne's character in the searchers he was clearly on the confederate side in the civil war like the same is true like when we did jesse james like he was on the confederate side of the so that's where a lot of these guys came from you know Mm -hmm. so you know seeing this here makes a lot of sense i also think by the way in this sequence tarantino does a great job of making you feel the fucking cold you know Mm -hmm. Like with the, you see in their breath and they're just got these raggedy blankets around them. And just the brutality of them marching mostly barefoot through this environment is brutal,
3: you know? Yeah. And I also think he knows his movies obviously. And so for those of us who are cinephiles, when we're going through this whole opening sequence, first of all, Using that song and the lyrics of that song, which are great. I watched it with the subtitles this last time. It's so, the lyrics just work so well, foreshadowing what we're going to see in the movie. And of course, they're obviously connected to the other stuff with before Django, the original Django. But then the shots and the sequences here and the font of the uh, graphics that are coming up on the screen with the credits, all of that is like old school 1970s spaghetti western. Even the opening logo of the studio is that old school 1970s logo. So, he is completely transporting you back in time and put and washing you or, or or giving you the vibe that you are back watching a film just like this. So, you as a cinephile have to go, okay, this is the kind of film I'm about to watch. And he's genius about this because he always delivers elevated versions of these films uh, that celebrate that type of genre, but uh, he always delivers a way better film than most of those films uh, from that section of the film of uh, films in uh, in our history of films. Yeah, and uh, now we hear
0: somewhere in the distance this wagon coming towards us, and we got our our cowboys on horses, and we have this wagon coming up, and then almost straight into camera as we hear a rifle cock.
2: Who's that stumbling around in the dark? State your business or prepare to get winged.
0: And this is James Remar in one of two parts in which the movie. Is,
2: <laughs> which is the wildest thing to me. And it's because I remember when I first, I was like, wait, did I just see, didn't he? Because when you first watched it, you're like, didn't he get the shit shot out of him on a, on a horse? <laughs> and then you see him later here, who the fuck? It was the most confusing thing, but it works because it's like, it's like Tarantino's like, nobody's gonna care. Because that's yeah. literally that Quentin dresses. No one's gonna
3: care. James Remar and James Russo, the two James here, both great character actors who play who have been in westerns before, and of course uh, Remar from Forty Eight Hours, the great villain in Forty Eight Hours. Mm.
0: Oh, that's oh, you're right. I had totally forgotten that that's him. Yeah. And then who do we get but Christoph Waltz? Who, oh, the guy could do no wrong. <laughs> both of the both the glorious bastards in here. It's like I love every second he's on the film. Yeah.
1: Good cold evening, gentlemen. I'm looking for a pair of slave traders that go by the name of the Speck Brothers.
0: Might that be you?
2: Because he's so, you don't understand, you're like, I'm just he's like just a fellow weary traveler, and you see the tooth on the wagon and everything, and then he introduces the horse who nods, which is no. always the greatest thing to me in this whole movie. The horse, <laughs> like, this is my horse, Fritz, and Fritz takes a bow, like, it's the best thing.
0: Yeah. But by, by the way, the tooth is Quentin's idea, and they had to keep rebuilding them because they were swinging around so much that they kept breaking. So they ended up having just five spare tooth, teeth with them whenever they were shooting with this wagon. <laughs> his, his
3: whole manner, his whole mm-hmm. polite manner is so great. Yeah, when you rewatch the film, you understand that this is how he is a bounty hunter. He uses the politeness to offset everything because people are unsettled by someone that can speak so well and address them with a certain level of respect because these are hard Scrabble people that he's going after. So it unsettles them, it puts them back on their feet. So it's the advantage to take advantage of them mentally. Also, I think this is a great intro because he comes out of the darkness, which is a little bit of uh, an allusion to High Plains Drifter, how he comes out of the fuzziness and then disappears back into the fuzziness. Of course we're going to find out what happens to him later on in the movie, but he he's unknown. He's a, just comes out of the darkness this uh, thing in the west and it's great.
1: Now, are you the Speck brothers and did you purchase those men at the Greenville slave auction? So what? So I wish to parley with you. Speak English. Oh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It is a second language.
0: It's a second language. <laughs> Well, and this is a gag we're going to get multiple times is that he's so far ahead of everybody (laughs) that he and he speaks English better than anybody else in the film. Mm. (laughs) It's just great.
1: Hello, you poor devils. Is there one amongst you who was formerly a resident of the Karukin plantation?
3: I'm from the Karukin plantation.
0: And he comes down off the wagon, lights a match, lights his lantern, and he walks down the row of slaves and the choice to pass Django and then come back. And what I think is so great about the way all this is set up, and this happens also multiple times in the film, is Django has every reason to be afraid, you know? Yes, He doesn't know what this guy wants, you know? Mm -hmm. What's your name? Django. Then you're exactly the one I'm looking for. He asks about the Brittle Brothers. Um, And I think very quickly Django realizes that this guy maybe isn't going to be a threat
2: there's a hesitation because he knows i'm looking for the Spec brothers the slave traders but then i'm looking for the brittle brothers and then you see the little brief he knows who the brittle brothers are yeah you know he knows who they are so it's almost that two i'm putting this one and one together so why (laughs) are you looking for them and looking for them there's something to this hey
3: stop talking to him like that like what like that
1: my good man, I'm simply trying to ascertain... Speak English, goddammit.
0: It's J.P. right there. Speak English, goddammit. <laughs> and he brings up his rifle and is pointing it at Schultz. Did you simply get carried away with your dramatic gesture, or
1: are you pointing your weapon at me with lethal intention?
0: And the rifle gets cocks, cocked, and he says, Last chance, fancy pants. And I love this moment. And, and by the way, before doing this movie, Christoph Waltz had never handled guns at all. Oh, wow. Really? So he had he had to do a lot of practice, particularly for this moment, because what he's about to do, he's holding up the lantern, which makes him hard to see behind it, drops the lantern and then the same movement, quick draws, and shoots James Weimar in the head. Explodes his head.
2: In pure Quentin Tarantino fashion. Yes, yeah. <laughs>
0: I think this is his I think this is his bloodiest movie up to this point. I mean, really good. more
2: than the Crazy 88s and that whole scene. No, hey, No, yeah, this is no, cuz I think I think this is, no cuz remember he black and whites it. He black yeah. and whites it in, and in Kill Bill. Okay, all right,
3: fair.
2: You're yeah. seeing no. the level of violence in this movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what it is? I, I, you're to- totally right about the black and white, Jay, and it's stylistically different just mm-hmm. in the way the blood like there's more of the old school, like, Lone Wolf and Cud blood hose in mm-hmm. Kill Bill. Yeah. This is like explosions of gooey gunk. You the know what I mean? Blood. Yeah, <laughs> It's just, <laughs> there could be, there should be a whole other, like, cinephile short on just the qualities of blood in Tarantino <laughs> movies. The pool much, of blood, Mr. How much Orange. How pancake syrup is used? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I'm sure they had that conversation. I'm sure they did, of, like, exactly what do you want this blood to look like? And he, sh- he shoots a horse in the head. Mm-hmm. horse goes down. Guy's trapped under it, screaming. You goddamn son of a bitch!
1: You shot Roscoe! Well, and you killed Ace! Nah, I only shot your brother once he threatened to shoot me. And I do believe I have one, two, three, four, five witnesses
3: who can attest to that fact.
2: Again, he's so calm the yeah. whole time. He's yep. so calm.
3: He lights the lantern calmly, walks over calmly, and he knows this is just going to make him scream more. So he does scream more. You know, he knows exactly. He's so in control of the situation. Well, and I think Django, who was unsure what to think about this guy before, is now
0: feeling a lot better about him. Because now when, when Schultz asks if you could recognize them, he says, yeah. Sold American. So Mr. Speck, Mr. Speck, how much for a young Django here? I have two questions. The first question is, if the guy agreed to sell Django at this moment, would he buy him and take him away? And second, does he have any belief that this guy is going to sell Django and does he know he's actually going to kill the guy or get the guy killed?
3: I think he's always going to kill the guy. And he's just playing this all out as a as a little bit of torture to torture the guy. Yep. Because by the way, end of the scene, when he tells the, the other slaves there that they can either drag this guy 37 miles back the other way to the doctor or take this guy out, bury them both deep. deep and, yep.
2: on out. <laughs> and then, Bury them deep. Yeah. And, and in case there's any astronomy official, the North star is that one. <laughs> yeah.
3: And I think he shoots the horse on purpose. That isn't a mistake. He shoots the horse to oh, do yeah. this guy. Yeah. Knowing the horse is going to fall on this guy. So this is a whole plan from the beginning, which is why he was probably waiting there in the woods, in the dark, until they showed up at this moment because he had staged this entire thing in his mind and had planned out everything that might happen. And so, um, yeah, so I think he's always going to kill this or uh, at least leave him for dead and he's always going to free the slaves. Uh,
0: And I love, by the way, the moment where as he's talking to Django and we're dealing with the chains and stuff, he says... Could you hold this for a moment? And hands the rifle... To one of the slaves, right?
2: Who is so confused at the moment, because <laughs> he's like, "Uh, what do I?" That, and that shows you, if anything, again, we talk about some of the humor and different things, but that just shows you the mental slavery as well—the yeah. fact that you—he's watched this rifle kill a man, shoot a horse, be handed to him, and without he doesn't know what to do with it. He's just like, yeah. "Huh? Like it's it's unreal." Because in most cases, you would think that he would just shoot uh, the white man to try to free them.
3: Right, right. Well,
0: I, that's what I think is so great about Schultz's character, and 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 from what you and and what you said, Jay, it's like, well, a white guy just killed another white guy, and then right. handed me the rifle. This yeah. is not, you know, he th- this guy has survival techniques, and those survival techniques do not involve holding the rifle for a you know a, a white man. That's mm-hmm. not how things are supposed to go,
1: Django get up on that horse
0: also if i were you i'd take that winter coat the dear departed speck left behind and jamie fox walks forward in slow motion and he tosses back that blanket with the sound effect and you see his you see both the powerful physique of this guy yeah and you see the scars on his back
2: and then you get the great laugh from the other speck brother don't you touch my brother's coat." (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, and he walks up to him stands over him and I'm going man what's he gonna do what's he gonna do and what his choices is, is so brilliant which he just puts his foot on that horse that's on top of this wounded guy and pushes down
2: and then run, but still runs over afterwards remember still a bit scared yeah because yeah. even though he knows this man is pinned under a horse a dead horse that cannot move he is still scared of
0: him in that compromised position. And Schultz pays him, and pays him for his brother's horse.
2: Damn you, Dennis!
0: <laughs> um, and he writes up the bill of sale. Django gets on the horse, and now—and this is the moment you were just describing. He turns to the slaves and says, and, "And this is the moment that you guys were talking about, where you know he gives them the choice." And I'll say, as Django and Schultz head off and they turn towards this guy trapped under the horse and they advance on him slowly. Oh man. Yeah. And the turn from this guy that, and this is something I would say throughout the movie is the turn from someone who thinks they have all the power and thinks that their status
3: is absolute. And then they realize that it isn't. Yeah. And their status is only absolute because they've rigged the game to let them be in a position of power on horses with guns, stripped down these human beings to just their shirts, I'm sorry, their pants, or a a blanket, a very probably thin blanket that they're wearing in very cold conditions. So they've rigged the situation. Later on, when we see what happens with Don Johnson's crew, he says it there, Schultz does, cowards, they run, they always run. Because they can't handle an equal situation. And so it's, it's yep. very true here in this moment.
0: Um, and naturally, they kill him. No, no, please. And the music hits. And this is one of the pieces, is that a lot of the music is Ennio Morricone. I mean, if you're going to do a yeah. spaghetti Western, get the original music. And apparently, Morricone was not happy with a lot of the ways that Tarantino used
2: Really? It.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It took and a I while for him to talk him into getting onto um, inglorious. I mean, uh, uh, Hateful Eight. So, yeah. Right. Uh, and we
0: end up in Doherty, Texas. Um, and this was shot near L.A. This is mostly built out. Um, the, oh, wow. The production designer is a guy named Michael Riva. And Michael Riva was the production designer on, John, your favorite film, Goonies. Oh, <laughs> oh Jesus. Mm-hmm a film that actually I think is one of your favorite films, Lethal Weapon.
3: Yeah. He
0: also did Color Purple, A Few Good Men. He did the first Iron Man, which means that Michael Riva is in many ways responsible for the origins of the look of the Marvel universe, you know? Wow. Yeah. And he said he loved the script. And what his comment on the script was, he said, authenticity should never stand in the way of a good story. I <laughs> know <laughs> oh, that's right. I think that sums up a lot about this movie. Yeah. And so, you know, I think this uh, this whole set of Doherty, Texas, the mud, the smoke, the color palette, it just looks really great. And this is also a really tragic story because Michael Riva died of a stroke in the middle of shooting on set. What? While they're filming this movie. This movie. Yeah. What? Yeah. Wow. He um, And they had this meeting and I and I'm not sure. I think it was fairly far into the film. But I'm not exactly sure what set they were on. I think he was, they were in New Orleans when this happened. Damn. And then my understanding is that Quentin basically went to the art department and said, listen, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to take, you know, a couple of days off? Do you want to, you know, w- what do you want to do? And they went, let's have a meeting. They had a meeting. And it sounds like, from my understanding, that universally, everybody who worked with Michael Reva they just went, well, what would Michael have wanted? And they mm-hmm. went, Michael would have wanted the show to go on. And so they went right back to work the next day.
2: You hear about that a lot though, un- unfortunately, I hate to say it, because I know a lot of people say, Oh, well, that's just traumatic, making them work and pushing through. But again, to have the director say, I'm tell I'm coming to you all. Yeah, yeah. To ask you what you wanna do. Yeah. Because he could be that he could be the proverbial asshole and say, All right, yeah. well, y'all got a day, you know. But John say, Ford hey. wouldn't
3: have given him a day. John Ford would be like, we're, we're shooting tonight. Let's go. Yeah. yeah.
2: And so to give them the and then to say, hey, he would want the show to go. It's the same thing when you hear with certain athletes, when you hear with comedians, actors, all of the sorts. There are people who say that this person would want the show to go on, would want everything to finish. Don't let me stop anything, even though my death is a sad moment. It's a moment in life. You know, and and we can never directly know the words of what that person would say, because they're gone, right? And so to for it speaks volumes for the art director, the art set, the art art team to be like, no, 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 we're gonna finish this up.
0: I also there's something about, I mean, what are you gonna do? You're just gonna sit in sadness for a day, or have something to occupy your mind on some level, you know? Um, so they ride into town. I, I think Jamie Foxx plays the nervousness of the situation really brilliantly, mm-hmm. you know, of just like, what, is, what what, am I, I'm on a horse. Everybody's staring at me. We see a noose, you know, like a, 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 a gallows. Mm-hmm. As soon as we ride into town, it's like, this is a scary situation. Yeah. And people's reaction as they see what they will call an N word on a horse. Um, by the way, as I read the lines of this movie, this is a lot of a word that I'm not going to say. <laughs>
2: oh, that was one of the reasons Spike Lee was mad was like, there's a lot of, it. they said, this is the most, the count of the word was like 192 oh. or something. It's wow.
0: It's so much.
2: It's the so count much. of the, the word nigger in the movie. And I'm a black person, y'all, for those who are listening. Uh, they said the count of the word nigger in the movie is like 190 something times. Because you. they thought that hateful eight was going to meet or beat it. Which is crazy that that's a barometer you're using. Yeah.
0: It's a lot. And they're all having a reaction to it. And uh, Schultz and Django head into the saloon. And the innkeeper, who, who Schultz calls the innkeeper, is up messing with the lamps and doesn't see who's just walked in.
1: Good morning, innkeeper. Two beers for two weary travelers.
0: And the guys just started talking to him and then he turns around and we get one of many 1970s zooms. <laughs>
1: whoa, 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 whoa. What the hell you think you're doing, boy?
0: And then he runs out yelling help.
1: Help! help. inkeeper Remember, get the sheriff's, not the marshal.
0: And then Schultz says,
1: Alas, now we must act as our own bartender
0: sit down boy I just want to point out the the subtle difference between calling a black man boy and saying sit down my boy mm-hmm. Those are totally different things
2: Be- because you'll you'll go on into like the next in the next set of lines it explains everything why he says that
3: Yeah mm-hmm.
2: because if I if I may go a little bit further just like maybe 45 seconds he talks about how he hates slavery Yep. He doesn't like it. And so to him, Django's just a man in a bad situation. Yep. In a really compromised, fucked up situation. So sit down, my boy. We're just talking. You're, you know, there's no difference to you. Yeah, you're a black guy. You're you're in this country that's doing terrible things to your people. I don't see you as beneath me. I
0: also go, how quickly did Schultz realize that there is something special about this guy? Or or? At what stage is he starting to see that?
3: I think he sees it as soon as Django flips off the cape, uh, of the ta- of the blanket. Yep, I in so that too. moment, you know there is a pride in himself, even with the scars, even with the experience. But there is a pride with which he walks, and I, you know, Tarantino shoots it in slow motion to show you the heroic moment that he, the heroic heroic birth of Django in that moment. And Schultz sees that. So yeah, I think so it's actually before there. then. Oh, okay.
2: I think it's when he asked, Were any of you formerly a resident of the Karukin plantation? Oh. And Django me. speaks up. The fact that he spoke up. The fact yeah. that he spoke okay. up. Yeah. That in itself was telling because everybody, they all could have been like, mm, I'm not going to say nothing because I don't know this guy. But Django sure. spoke up. Yeah. I think it's that moment more than just, I get that. Yeah, you see the, he sees the power behind him when he throws off the blanket. Yeah. But to know there's something about him.
0: There's something about well, him. And I'm going to add a third moment because I think this is exactly it. Moment one is what you said, Jay. Moment two, John, is what you said. And the third moment to me, putting your foot on that horse.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Good point. Because yeah. that is a move. You know, that is a that is a smart move, a, and it's a stylish move. It has, you know, there's a lot to it. And, and I love, by the way, as he's pouring these beers, just the detail of of sliding the head of the beers off <sighs> with the ruler mm-hmm. smart. Little details make movies, man. Do you know what a bounty hunter is? No. And by the way, there's no way Django could know what a bounty hunter is because that term is not invented until the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's no such thing as a bounty hunter. I mean, there were people that, that hunted people for money, but there was they weren't called bounty hunters.
1: Right. The way the slave trade deals in human lives for cash, a bounty hunter deals in corpses.
0: And a love he hands in the beer. And then they clink glasses Post. and Django drinks. Is this Django's first beer? Yes, it is. I think so too. Probably.
2: Yes, it is. It, it, it absolutely is. Huh. Yeah, It absolutely is his first beer. It's his first. It, it's probably more than
0: first time to having water, dirty water or just mm. just whatever was left over. What, what I really like about these two characters, and and, and I'm just going to spoil this right from the beginning, <laughs> I could watch the Django and Schultz adventures all day. Oh, yeah. I, I love them together. I think they're so great. And what I love about both of them, the both of these people are observers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both of these people see everything that's going on, you know? Their behavior might be different, but they see everything.
1: The state places a bounty on a man's head. I track that man, I find that man, I kill that man. After I've killed him, I transport that man's corpse back to the authorities. Sometimes that's easier said than done. I show that corpse to the authorities, proving yes, indeed, I truly have killed him, at which point the authorities pay me the bounty.
2: Yes, indeed, I truly have killed this man. <laughs> the way he says it,
0: proving yes, indeed, I truly have killed this man. <laughs> Such a great portrayal.
2: You kill people and they give you a reward.
0: Do you think Django's already kind of liking this idea for
3: himself, or is that thought not occurred to him yet? Oh, I think so. Just him even asking about it is the opening to the door of him wanting to consider this as a possibility.
2: Remember, you get the. He tells me later, you get. To, I get to kill white people for money. Yeah, <laughs> that because again, to him, you know, and I know some people are going to be like, "Well, he
3: just thinks all white people are bad." Yes, because that's all he knows. To a hammer, everything is a nail. nail. At this yep. point, you know, I mean, having endured nothing but slavery for how many years at the hands of white people, why would he be like, you know what, I should take them on their character when I meet them and make a moment and decide. And then, and then at that point, I'll decide if they're de- evil. No, I mean, to him, it's always a threat, which is what Steve pointed out earlier. As he's riding into town. Yes, he's got the kind of protection of a white man next to him in in Christoph Waltz, but He's also he also knows white people can absolutely kill him at any moment that they feel like it, and there's nothing anything can anyone can do about it. And so there's a little bit of that walk in the line between trepidation and also feeling himself a little bit. And uh, like Bruce Dern says later, "Kids got sand. He's got sand.
2: So, also, is it that scene where they go into Daughtry, or is it the scene later when they're in uh, Mississippi, where if you remember when they're on the horse, there's a white woman looking out the window at him. And That's she, this it's, scene. That, it's in this scene where okay. she's like, oh my God. And again, it's, it's privy to, it's, it's one of those things that we heard about happening. It was the yeah. fetishization of black men. To see a black man on a horse, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're already fetishizing them. And now you see him in this level. It's that, li- again, little bitty details
0: a lot of people didn't pay attention to. Yeah. I think that moment in the movie in terms of setting up the movie is great. I also think there probably were lots of black men on horses occasionally because they had to bring, you know, the horses here or there. They had to take the court to the cart to market or, you know, things like that. I don't think it was as unusual as the movie makes it seem, but I think in terms of the movie, I think it's great.
3: Well, we don't um, like to get authenticity in the way of the story. <laughs>
0: exactly. Well, that's the thing. I mean, well, that's the thing throughout this whole movie. I mean, yeah. like, I, I honestly feel like, I don't believe that Django could do what he does in the second half of this film and yeah. get away with it in the deep South, you know, like I just don't, but again, don't let authenticity get in the way of a great story, <laughs> like, you know? Um, so, and this is the, the, is the moment you brought up before, which is that technically Schultz just bought Django. He owns yeah. it. Right. And yeah. he is, very, and he could use him to get exactly what he wants and that makes him very uncomfortable
1: I would like the two of us to enter into an agreement
0: and the music comes in and he leans in very seriously I'm looking for the Brittle brothers and I don't think any white man has ever entered into an agreement with Django before
1: you travel with me until we find him where are we going oh, I hear at least two of them are overseeing up in Gatlinburg but I don't know where you point them out I kill them. You do that I agree to give you your freedom. $25 per per brother. $75
0: Which by the way in 2023 dollars that's $2,725.
2: Which still is nothing. Yeah. Still is nothing. In in 2023 dollars? That's not going to get
0: you that far. Barely (laughs) getting a month of rent. And then as if on cue here comes the sheriff. Okay boys fun's over. Come on out. And Django stands, I think, justifiably scared. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Why y'all want to come into my town
2: and start trouble?
0: And he says, you ain't got nothing better to do than to come into Bill Sharp's town and show your ass.
2: Steve, you got to do it better. You ain't got nothing better to do than to come into Bill
0: Sharp's town and show your ass. (laughs) Jay, normally... I don't care that much about my performance because I'll just cut to the actor. Right. right. (laughs) I will be leaving all of that in because what you just did (laughs) was priceless. Um, And I love the, the speed, which we're going to see echoed later on in this film of Schultz just walking forward, that little Derringer pops out of his wrist and he shoots the sheriff. Yep. And people are freaking out, and he calmly walks around to the other side and shoots him in his head.
2: Wait, I, I, said, what did you do to our sheriff after seeing him get shot? What did you do to our sheriff? And he was like this. And then, then say this and shot him again to make sure he was dead. And then tells the innkeeper, now you can get to Marshall.
0: <laughs> um. By the way, the little derringer that doesn't exist at this time period. In fact, basically none of the guns hey, that are what used. Is, what's the moral of this story? Don't let off its get the way of story. I I am I am compelled, I'm like contractually obligated <laughs> to point this stuff out. It says so in the founding documents of the Cinephiles, but I I will I will concede the point. Um Django is just on this ride at this point with this person who is continually bizarre and surprising
2: and murdering people but yeah.
0: not just bizarre he is
2: killing what? because again Django knows they can just blame me for yeah,
3: all of I. this yeah yeah, yeah.
0: In, in a second and he is you know lynched in whatever horrible manner possible and he's just he can't do anything he's just trapped there with this crazy person basically time for the, the marshal to show up Tom Wopat how, how, how do you feel about Tom Wopat showing up in this movie?
3: I love it. I love it. As a Dukes of Hazard fan, yep. I love it. I mean... U.S. Marshal Gil Tatum. I always felt that those guys got a short shrift and should have gotten more stuff afterwards. Of course, we still have uh, John in our lives, but Tom became this big Broadway star and musical right. theater star and whatever, so having him now come back and work in, Tar- in a Tarantino film, it fits the pattern bring in Travolta back, bring in Robert Forster back. It just, fits the pattern of what he likes to do because I think in a way he's kind of thumbing his nose to the industry saying, you guys forgot about these people and they're still damn good. We grew up on these people. We loved these people as actors. How dare you forget about them? I'm going to give them fun scenes in my movies to remind you how good they can be. And Tom Wolpat is seamlessly damn good in the film. And if you compare what he did to what the sheriff just did acting-wise, Tom is on a whole nother level, even in this small scene. And it's great to see. So I, I love the way he plays this entire scene. And he's all in black, which I think is great as well. I also go, like, I,
0: I, I love the Dukes of Hazard too. I thought that was a great show when I was a kid. And I just so, like, remember when I I, I kind of look back, and was like, wow, Confederate flag and Dixie. Oh, good and- point. Yeah, the there's, some weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's some stuff that probably <laughs> just wouldn't fly. Um, and maybe that's part of putting Tom Wopat in this part because he ends up being a reasonable person in this environment. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And this is like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid level of they are surrounded by guns. Guns are pointing at the saloon from every possible angle.
2: You in the saloon. We got 100 rifles aimed at every way out of that building you got one chance. Get out of this alive.
0: And then from inside, Schultz is negotiating. He wants to make sure that this is the marshal. He gets his yep. name.
2: This is U.S. Marshal Gil
1: Tatum. Not Wunderbar, marshal. I trust as a representative of the criminal justice system of the United States of America, I shan't be shot down in the street by either you or your deputies before I've had my day in court.
0: Do you think that Schultz's heart rate has gone up at all in any of this? Nope.
3: Yeah, no. He's you know, it's not his first for lack of a term, it's not his first rodeo in doing this. And like I said, he likes to plan out. He's got this whole thing planned out. He's scoped these. Yep. Uh, there's no way he just rolled it in this town for the first time. He has scoped this town out. He knows totally. exactly what's going on. So he knows exactly the process that this is all going to go. So he's in control.
2: Also, he knows exactly what to say. Yeah. Do I have your word as a duly designated yeah. representative that I shan't be shot? Like, these are actual laws. He's say, he's reciting the law to him. And so yeah. when the marshal's like, you mean like you did our sheriff? He was like, do I have your word? And he says, yes. And because him saying already, I've, I've deputized a hundred people with rifles around me. Yeah. If you shoot me, you've broken your word, which is a contractual break. It can go completely bad steel.
3: Yeah. And he's probably heard that this is a marshal that does everything by the book. So he's relying on the patterns that this marshal has laid out. And he sure enough says, you know, I ain't going to deny my town a hanging or ain't going to deny the hangman his justice. So, yeah. So after giving Django
0: a little warning about keeping his hands up and letting him do Mm. the talking, they head outside.
1: Marshal Tatum. May I address you and your deputies and apparently the entire town of Daughtry as to the incident that just occurred?
2: Because like apparently the entire town of Daughtry, like, because everybody's outside now, like,
1: yo. The man lying dead in the dirt, who the good people of Daughtry saw fit to elect as their sheriff, who went by the name of Bill Sharp, is actually a wanted outlaw by the name of Willard Peck.
0: And he explains this guy's got a price on his head, And you could see the marshal turning. And I think it's because of the calm. It's because of the matter of fact and fearless way that he's doing it, that the marshals goes, this guy can't possibly be lying, you know, because why would he do this?
2: Right. When he pulls out the warrant, Mm -hmm. when he pulls out the thing an order from federal court judge, Henry Allen Laudermilk of Austin, Texas, you're encouraged to wire him, you know, to say all of these things, again, a marshal who's by the book, he knows everything to say and then even the marshal if you notice the marshal drops his shoulders because again he's here he's ready he's at a tent as he's hearing everything he drops down and if you watch behind him some of the rifles drop yeah they start to unclick they start to unclick because everybody's like oh shit what did
0: we do (laughs) I'm not getting involved with the government (laughs) yeah I'm not going (laughs) to shoot
2: this dude
0: (laughs) and this ends with Schultz saying in other words marshal you owe me two hundred dollars. <laughs>
3: Wopat well, does a great uh, comedic double take because he just looks down, looks back up. It's a great like take to kind of show to underline the humor of that moment, which I think is a really nice job from a veteran actor. And the music hits, and then we cut to Django, and the look that he gives
0: Christoph Waltz is just so great. And he says,
3: "His name is King. He had a
0: home. And we cut to Schultz driving the wagon, Django riding the song, and the song starts with his name is King. He had a horse. <laughs> I think this is an original song for the movie. This- I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Which mostly, uh, my, understa- my understanding is Tarantino, you know, did needle drops. He pulled songs from oh, his yeah. past that he loved. I think this has more original songs than any Tarantino movie, at least up to this point, I oh, think. Oh, wow, okay. I think. And now we're sitting with the two of them and they're eating, it's nighttime, they're sitting on the rocks.
1: After this brutal business is behind us, you'll be a free man. The horse, $75 in your back pocket. What's your plan after that? Buy my wife,
0: buy freedom. And this is the most he's revealed about himself up to this point.
1: Mm -hmm. Hello, I had no idea you were a married
2: man. Do most slaves believe in marriage? Me and my wife do.
0: Mayor Karukin didn't. And we cut to, and this is, you know, these quick cuts to the past. And we see Django in that horrible, you know, headgear stuff. Yeah. And there is uh, Bruce Dern. Yeah. Is this his first movie that he did with Tarantino?
3: It might Uh, be. Maybe. Because. Uh, because, I mean, Hateful Eight is after this. Yeah, Hateful which, Eight you know, is after this. It's a great
2: scene. He wasn't unless in reservoir. Dern, Unless cool. Dern is like a small part. Let me, unless
0: he's a small part somewhere. This is his first. And he fits into the Tarantino world just so well, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as you said, John, he says, Django, Django. But you got sand, Django. The boys got sand. <laughs> I got no use for an N word with sand. And no use for. It. <laughs> Thank you for editing yourself, Steve. I appreciate you, <laughs> dude. <laughs> it was a hundred and ninety <laughs> times. In the movie? Yep. It was because what I really need is a recording somewhere with me saying the N word. That's <laughs> right. That's, that's exactly right. what I need in my life.
1: And I want you to take them to the Greenville auction and sell them, both of them, separately. this one, you will sell him cheap.
2: Historically, people do not understand what that means. And you guys might. uh, To be sold cheaper means you get to do the worst of things, and you are treated even lower. There's no value to you. You can be disposed of instantly.
0: And there's also the difference between the smaller slave owners in the northern parts of the slave states and the big, huge plantations down south. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were getting sold cheap, you were probably getting sold down south.
1: Yeah. You know when she was sold? You know where she came from? How do you know her name? What is her name?
0: Brunhilde. And this is the first surprised reaction we see from Schultz in the whole movie. Yep. Brunhilde? Were her owners German? Yeah, you know? She wasn't born on the Peruken plantation. She was raised by a German mistress, von Schaffs. She speak a little German, too. And then we dissolve to these beautiful scenes. And we see these several times in the film. And maybe they're fantasies and maybe they're flashbacks. But just a beautiful shot of Carrie Washington on the swing.
2: They call me Hildy.
0: And it's right on the edge of this could be just a fantasy in his mind or it could be a real thing, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, a, it's the memory. Now we start to realize who is yeah. this Broomhilda? Who is he fighting for? Who is this love of his life? That's the way it's shot to show you the beauty of who she is, even though it's not the
0: full you know scope of what, what she's gone through. And now we go to them. They're in like a, I will say a haberdashery because we're trying on some hats. And now we're going to hear some of the plan. He says, When we gain access to these plantations, we'll be
1: putting on an act you'll be playing a character.
0: And I like the way the shot's set up because you see Schultz in the mirror his reflection and as you see uh, Jamie Foxx trying on hats.
1: During the act, you can never break character. Do you understand? Yeah. Don't break
0: character. I think... I mean, Django's a super, super smart guy. Yeah. Whose smarts have never been appreciated until Schultz, who... Because he doesn't go... Mm -hmm no, no, I wanna make sure that you understand this. He goes, oh no, you understand this.
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: And now Django, you may choose your character's costume.
0: He's
1: gonna let me pick out my own clothes.
0: Initially in the script, Schultz picked out the clothes for Django. And it was Jamie Foxx's idea. He said, no, no, this'll be better. Let me pick out my own clothes for the first time. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's never been able to. Oh, wow. That's smart. smart. What I'm not sure of, is what the process was to decide what in fact that first costume is because (laughs) when you see him right out in that blue outfit man you got a peacock peacock you know what i'm saying well i mean you know i mean i can't i can't imagine never being able to choose any of your clothes ever
3: Yeah. yeah So it makes sense that he would go overboard. Exactly. And also something with
2: color that's bright, because as a slave, you were given the dark, muted, dim colors. Yeah, Exactly.
0: exactly. Well, and he's not familiar with what the current fashion trends are. You know, he just (laughs) picks the brightest thing he sees. Right. And, of course, people notice this this man riding in this outfit. Uh, By the way, the costume designer is Sharon Davis. Apparently... Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, Quentin was very, very involved in all the costumes. Yeah. All of these were drawn out. All of these were constructed for the movie. And they definitely had a very, very specific progression in mind for Django through each of his different costumes to the film. Yeah, And and the other choice they made, by the way, is Schultz is always in various shades of gray. Mm. Um. And he has, I mean, it's, he's not a peacock because he's gray. He's wearing gray, mm-hmm. but his mustache and his hair, and he has a very specific look that he obviously is proud of.
2: It's a distinguished level of gray. The suits, they all they are they're all tailored suits, if you
0: will. They all fit perfectly, you know, yeah. even though from the different shades. And we ride into a plantation, and out comes Big Daddy, played <laughs> by Don Johnson.
3: <laughs> oh man, this was. Loved
2: him in this. Let me Loved tell you something real quick. If I can do a quick cut to this, after seeing this and then watching him in Watchmen, I was like, "Uh, what is this with him and being a slave dude? Like he was the descendant mm. of a clansman." And watching the on April. you're like, "Hey, bro, this is a right. little too close to
0: home." <laughs> it, it's funny too because he's another TV star yep. that you're Ames bringing team into team. this. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Sharon Davis describes his costume as a combination of Miami Vice and Colonel Sanders.
1: (laughs) 100%. (laughs) 100%. It's against the law for niggers to ride horses in this territory. This is my valet. My valet does not walk.
0: And this is the first argument. And at first, Big Daddy is totally rejecting that, like, why is this guy here? I don't want anything to do with you. I love that once again, Schultz introduces his horses. Who (laughs) bow?
1: I've been led to believe that you are a gentleman and a businessman. And it is for these attributes we've ridden from Texas to Tennessee to parlay with you now.
0: And Schultz says this with such uh, joy, excitement, something. <laughs> he says,
1: I wish to purchase one of your nigga gals. I wish to buy one of
2: your nigga gals. He's like, you and your Jimmy rode from Texas <laughs> to Tennessee to purchase
3: one of my nigger gals. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'd never heard the term Jimmy until, <laughs> until then? this movie right i've heard of jimmy hat of course but i'd never heard of jimmy and i was like what so that was a a, a new one on me well what i didn't get at first is that basically don johnson's
0: character is a pimp that's yeah. really what he that's his entire business yes he's more of a pimp more than anything I mean, he's big yep. daddy i mean he's know. big daddy and at first he's resisting and is being very strong and i love that uh, that this is when Schultz pulls on his mustache. Mr. Bennett,
1: if you are the businessman I've been led to believe you to be, I have 5,000 things I might say that could change your mind.
0: Well, that changes the conversation entirely.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, it does. Yes, it does.
0: And they, Schultz asks if you could have one of your gals give Django a little tour of the area. And this conversation with Bettina... Yes,
2: Big Daddy!
0: <laughs> I must remind you, Django is a free man. He cannot be treated like a
1: slave. He, uh, within the bounds of good taste, he must be treated as an extension of myself.
0: Well, this puts Big Daddy in a bit of a, a, a quandary and Bettina in a bit of confusion as to what exactly that means. She says, You want I to treat him like white folks? Do it again. Do and- it again,
2: Steve. Do it again.
0: <laughs> You're the Southern Twain, John. You-
3: <laughs> I'm not touching any of this. I'm calling you. Here's the way he said said
2: You want us to treat him like white folks?
3: I didn't say that. No, I didn't like, say that. No.
2: Then I don't know what you want.
3: <laughs> I-, I love that he's like, Yes, I can see that. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, and I
0: like to, I like to that Schultz, when she asked, You want us to treat him like white folks? That Schultz nods. Yes, yeah, that's true. That is yeah, how you should treated. Right. Yeah. I I mean, it's it's a stupid thing for me to say that like slavery is crazy and insane, which is yeah. I mean that's some, that'll be among the dumbest things I've ever said on the Cinephiles. But the <laughs> idea that of of like having these codes of how you treat people, it, it's it's crazy and
3: insane. It's like yeah. Well, this is what I feel about the movie when you watch the movie. Like he he, I understand the criticism some people make that he is. Making light of it in these moments, or like trying to keep you um, laughing about slavery, even though so that you can keep watching the movie because it's a really uncomfortable topic. But this is just the path he's choosing to tell this story. And when it gets dark, it gets super fucking dark when yes, we get does. to DiCaprio. And so this is just the slow build up to get you slowly but surely into the framework that you're a little like. Oh, this is cool, but it's uncomfortable, but I'm laughing in moments, blah, blah, blah. And then when we get to DiCaprio, all them jokes go away. So like, this is just his way of slowly getting you in and sucking you into the movie so that you're paying attention when all the shit goes down there at Candyland. So I I love that this is the approach that he's taking. And yes, these little scenes are also very well-written scenes, funny little diet. This scene doesn't even need to be in the movie. But it adds character to the movie. It's interesting. It's funny. And him defaulting in a troubleshooting moment to like, what's the name of the the boy who does the glass? Jerry, Jerry. That's Jerry. Jerry, my Jerry. Boy, Jerry. Which
2: and again it, he goes so, to the older
3: black woman who he's yes. had
2: for a very long time. Maybe the madam. Yeah, kind he's of pseudo
3: madam. Yeah. yeah,
2: she's the pseudo madam of the house.
0: Yeah. yeah. So so question about this who's Jerry? that uh, wood boy that peckerwood boy that works <laughs> that. <laughs> okay <But laughs> i think it's wh- jonah hill i think jerry is jonah hill oh that's interesting because here's a the study. thing he's a well this is study. the thing is is that what he's saying he tried because i so is jerry white or black that's my first jerry's point. white he's white that's what i think too jerry's white yeah. so what it is is that he he i think jerry is the most low status white person he could think of
3: <laughs> yes he is yes he is that's actually a great point steve i hadn't thought about that yeah because he's
0: not treating him like a slave, but you're not treating him like you treat white folks. Yeah. That's different.
3: And look, um, Jonah Hill is credited as Baghead number two. So he does not have a name. So to me, Jonah Hill is Jerry. Jonah seems is up Jerry. for grabs to me. Um, and now we're getting this tour.
0: And the first moment that's really, as, as, as Bettina is showing him around, the first moment that's really interesting is she says.
1: What you do for your master?
0: Didn't you hear him tell you ain't no slaves?
2: So you really free?
0: Yes, I was free.
1: I'm sorry,
2: Steve. It's just so the laughs. It's so <laughs> hilarious when they come up because they are like, yeah. Because, again, Django didn't talk. If you notice how he talked to Bettina in this one little scene, he doesn't talk like that the entire movie. Yeah. So mm. he was really free. Yes, I was free. He didn't say anything like that throughout this entire film. Before, then, go, later. It's the one time he relates to the
0: slave talk. Do you, so he's code switching, essentially, yes. to use that term. Yeah. Yes, yes. She's like, so you really want to dress like that? That's, what that's, that's <laughs> the best. That's the best. And, and I think in that moment, he knows he will never dress like this again. That that is his. That is a that is a wardrobe evolution moment for him. Yeah. And then he asks about the the brittle brothers, and she doesn't know their names. They could be using a different name. They would have come to the plantation this past year.
1: You mean the shapeless?
0: He Asked to point them out, and he goes, "Well, one's over in that field." And man, he pulls out that telescope. Uh, and he looks and the music hits, and we go immediately into this bleach bypass flashback look. This is very desaturated. We wanted it to look all very different. And we see the whip and we hear Oh man, Karuka, they gonna appreciate this now. She she she, she working the house, John. You can mess the skin up and you're gonna mess up. She ain't gonna be wearing gonna be worth the damn thing. And this is Django in the flashback begging for them not to hurt his wife.
2: She's a house slave. She's pretty, She a house slave, But again, that's him begging. I'm, beg, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Yeah. And then you even yep. hear, you even hear John Brittle. I like the way you beg, boy.
0: Yep. Because you're going to get back to that. And then we're within a, and this is funny because when Reservoir Dogs, we talked about that that movie going out of order are not flashbacks. This is right. a flashback. I think this is Django thinking about this moment. And what's interesting is it's sort of a flashback within a flashback because there's this moment where uh, Hildy is about to get whipped. Yeah. And within that, we see them running and being chased by the dogs and having mm-hmm. this last kiss as they know they're about to be to be caught. And then we see Hildy get whipped and Django watching it and begging on his knees, and it is brutal.
3: He's using and- every tactic he can in the book not to have her... Whipped and offers himself up.
2: Yeah, I'll take the punishment. She's like, I know better. You know me long. I know better. He wants to take the punishment for her.
0: Well, and I think we've known Django long enough to know that this is an extremely proud, strong man. Yeah. And to so to see him debase himself in this way, yeah, shows his love and willingness to sacrifice for this woman. I mean, it's it makes it more powerful, I think. And then in a very, like, hard, sudden moment, we're back into real time. He slams that telescope closed, and she says...
1: Is that who you was looking for?
0: Yep. And asks where the other two are, and she says, they whipping little Jody For breaking eggs. For breaking eggs. And I think if she, if they weren't whipping this poor person, I don't think Django would have gone to kill them. I think it's the connection between them whipping his wife... And hearing that they're about to do that to someone for breaking fucking eggs, yeah, that pushes him in the direction that he's going.
2: I mean, I think he they were he wanted him dead regardless. You know, again, absolutely. Those, those are the Brittle brothers. And he was there to look for them. It was just an easier way for sure to be like, okay, they're going one across. Where's the other two?
0: And to find the other two, it puts him right there with them totally i agree but i think the i think when schultz laid out the plan the plan was if you spot them oh yeah you come and get me and yeah. then i will take care of them
2: oh yeah of course so yeah he was like i'll kill them." so yeah, like i agree i definitely agree with you steve when they were about to whip somebody else he was like i'm not letting anybody else be beat by them
3: yeah
0: and we cut to the brittle brothers dragging this woman and quoting from the bible and mm-hmm. it's all terrible and after this
2: we'll see if you break eggs again You know what's the biggest problem? Well, the not a problem. It's a problem in general. This is real thing through slavery. How you had slave owners, uh, overseers, they used the Bible to justify beating slaves. This wasn't a this wasn't a thing added for the film. This when he talks about the beast of burden, basically black people were considered the beast of burden, and they used the Bible to justify. Beatings. that's why no one ever felt like it was wrong to have slavery because it was like God said they could.
3: yeah, well, yeah and and that's the thing that you know, we can't get into an hour long discussion about it. but certainly the idea of people using the Bible to um, reaffirm their prejudices, their biases, yes. their racism, their vi- their propensity for violence, they use the Bible as a shield. they cherry pick passages to support what they want to do and ignore other passages that would be against what they want to do or would be so stupid to actually try to do and and this is where it becomes um you know difficult to because also the bible and god and religion was a massive part of the slave community as well so it's that juxtaposition of how this is being used Mm -hmm. right slavery most people uh, black people uh, who were slaves then used the bible as a idea of thinking there is a better future for us down the road or a better life after we're gone in the afterlife. You know, there's a way of keeping community, finding strength with each other. Other people use the Bible. Some of the white uh, slave owners use the Bible to um, enact the things that they did or cover or shield themselves in in thinking they're doing God's work in the things that they're doing. And we're seeing that nowadays. People using the Bible to reinforce their racism, prejudice, hatred of of, uh, the LGBTQ plus community. And all kinds of nonsense that they're trying to promote nowadays. Never mind that there are no white people in the Bible. Let's not even get started there. But the the idea of it being used in this way, exactly. I love
2: that TikTok video. That one TikTok video, which is like, what's something everybody thinks the
3: Bible's not? This old white lady, she's like, white folks.
2: I'm
3: like, yo! I mean, don't even get me started. But like, yeah. So I think Tarantino is making just a real subtle commentary about it. Enough. If you're going to catch it, if you're analyzing it, it'll blow by you if you're not. But you, if you're analyzing it, you catch his commentary about how people have misused religion and the Bible for their own prejudices. I'll just
0: I'll just say that while I respect everybody's belief to believe whatever you want to believe, and if it gives you joy and peace, that's fantastic. Right. There are a lot of reasons why I'm, why I'm an atheist. This is one of them. <laughs> and he turns... And the camera pushes in on Jamie Foxx in that ridiculous outfit. <laughs> and the other guy looks, and he says, you "Remember me?" And just like Schultz did, out comes that gun, and he shoots him cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And is that Bible pages on his shirt? Yeah. Yes. That- yes. He yeah. tore
2: pages out the Bible and sta- like almost stapled them to himself.
0: Yeah. Literally a shield. Literally
3: a yeah. shield or armor.
0: Yeah. Or armor. See how-, yeah. see how well that worked for you. And yeah. by the way. Not for nothing, but that face-forward fall with no hands just right into the ground, that hurts.
3: Yeah. Yes. By the way, shout out, shout out to him MC Ganey. great character actor. If you guys remember him, he's the one flying the plane in Con Air into Vegas. It's so great to see him in this role and playing it this way. And I love that he is shot and it takes him a while to register the fact that he is dying. And then Django, cuz Django likes to throw a little bit of relish on it. Says, I love the way you, I like the way you die, boy. And so, just to get a little revenge right before the light leaves his eyes on Big John Brittle. So, just great. I love vengeance movies, love revenge movies. And so, these moments here are perfect for me. And the other guy goes, Goddamn son of
0: a bitch, and tries to draw his gun, just fumbles it like like a fool. Django goes for the whip and starts whipping him. Uh, steps on the gun, kicks it away. The guy goes down, and Django standing over him from above.
2: Whipping the dull shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> and says the one line that you keep hearing. You heard when he was telling uh when he was begging and pleading, he said, keep it funny.
3: Yeah. You listen yeah. when he
2: whipped it, he's like, Keep it funny.
3: Right, keep it funny. Um,
0: and he goes back and picks up a gun, and now the slaves of, of big daddy's plantation are all watching him. Yeah. And it's like, a, it's, it's, it's like a, an, even a far escalated version of what Django and the chained up guys saw when the Speck brothers were killed by Schultz, mm-hmm. you know, just this, like what is happening? There's a black man in a silly blue outfit who is just taking it to these white overseers.
3: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and he stands over him and he opens fire and shoots until that gun is empty. Ah! And then Schultz rides up.
2: That's Big John. That's Little Josh. Where's Ellis? He's the one tailing it across that field right now.
0: And I love this. This whole this whole bit of dialogue is great. You sure that's him? Yeah. Positive? I
1: don't know. You don't know if you're positive? I don't know what positive means.
0: It's like a who's on first, you know what I mean? Positive is. Are you sure? It means you're sure. Yes. Yes, what?
2: Yes, I'm sure that's Ellis Brittle.
0: What's so great about Way Quentin sets this up is that as soon as he's finishing the sentence, yes, I'm sure that's Ellis Brittle, right then mm-hmm. he fires.
2: I'm positive he's dead. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, what's positive? (laughs) Me.
0: There's a Big Daddy's plantation has cotton fields, and this is what Ellis goes down in the cotton fields. Uh, I think it's because of the season, but they couldn't grow cotton on this field, and so they had to find something else that would grow. Really, that would look like cotton, and so they looked through all these plants that could grow, and finally, what they find is that the stem, you know, the plant part of the fava bean plant looks a lot like cotton. So that's all fava beans. And then what they did was they cut off anywhere that it was actually grown beans, because beans don't actually grow on a cotton plant. And then they glued individual little tufts of white cotton onto every single plant to make that look like a cotton field. Okay, that is slavery in itself. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, they might have been really well paid, Jay. I mean, we don't, but it seems like a lot of work. Yeah, Jesus. And then up comes Big Daddy, obviously with a gun. And- Schultz says, Django! And the minute he says it, Django knows exactly what to do. They both drop their guns. They both put their hands up. Because Django saw how this worked with the sheriff and the marshal in Doherty, you know? He's like, okay, now the talking will happen. And it's very much a similar scene where Big Daddy is ready to kill them, and then he basically, you know, explains that he's, uh, you know, works for the courts, and he has a warrant in his pocket, and he goes through the details.
1: Now, I reiterate the warrant states dead or alive. So when Mr. Freeman and myself executed this man on site, we were operating within our legal boundaries.
0: And asks if he could pull out his warrant, which he does. And Big Daddy reluctantly hands it back. Get off my land. Post So they got it. I guess they got away with it. And we're not going to have any problem with Big Daddy or his people at all. Or oh, so you would think. <laughs> Um, we see a close-up of the tooth and something being taken out, which is money, and something put in, put in, which is dynamite. But if you're watching it the first time, I don't think you know exactly what that was. You know,
2: It looks like dynamite the first time. It actually looks like it if you really see it. You don't realize I, that it's money he's taken out. I thought it was more warrants.
0: Um, I'll say I didn't know that it was dynamite getting <laughs> put in the first time I saw it. You are obviously more observant. And then we see a bunch of dudes in hoods. Very birth of of a nation looking. They come up over the hill with torches and we're like, they surround the wagon and then we cut to earlier.
1: Damn, I can't see fucking
0: shit out of this thing. (laughs) How do you guys feel about this scene?
3: Yeah, this is the scene that's been talked about and have debated over, and there's multiple YouTube videos insulting this scene and, and defending this scene. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's in the humor of what he's already presented, and I get it. And like I said, we're going to get darker as the film goes along. So at this point, he's just making fun of the KKK. And I know yeah. it feels like he's making light of the KKK, but it depends on how you take it. So I respect whatever people's opinions are about this scene, for me, I take it as him, like, absolutely making fun of these idiots because they're all arguing about totally. these hoods mm-hmm. and they can't see. And then he reduces it down and uses modern terminology, all right? So the I could see the guy at the back going like, well, you know, my wife spent, you know, all day doing 30 bags for you idiots. Well, don't even ask me and mine for anything no more and rides off, right? But when the dude uses modern um uh, therapy language, being like, now I think we can say, you know, <laughs> you know, we all appreciate the work that was done here. Just next time, maybe do a little bit better on these hoods. So trying to appease everybody, um, and then everybody takes off the hoods, and then even uh, Don Johnson's or uh, yeah, Big Daddy's like, well, I didn't say y'all could take off the hoods. And then Jonah Hill, who I think is
2: see, but nobody, yeah, nobody can see, <laughs> We're not supposed to see. It's a raid. Because the way they go, I was like, I can't see. You can't see. No, Lord, it's getting
0: fucking a
3: horse see. <laughs> Exactly. And it's- so it, it's go very ahead, funny to show the stupidity. No, I was just saying, you, it's a very funny to show the stupidity of all of them. But like I said, I can understand people might be offended by this scene, feeling that he's making light instead of making fun of the KKK, which was a very serious and terrible thing. I agree with you because... Mm.
2: This, so we've seen. Look, we watched the opening of this movie with slave on slave traders yeah. be murdered and be jokingly with the whole time, right? Right. This isn't the opening sequence of the movie. Mm-hmm. We have, yeah. we watch a dude get told, I don't like slavery, but I need you. So I'm going to make it work to my advantage when yeah. he kills a, a dude and serves a warrant. All, again, it's supposed to show, like you said, how dumb they are. Yeah, right, exactly. Because even the guy says, I think the bags were a nice idea. How about we go <laughs> no bags, and next <laughs> time we go full regalia. And it's like, it lets you know almost all the men in this town also were part of the fucking clan.
3: Yes, 100%. Which is the way it was most of the time. They
2: yeah. were the clan. And so, I again, as, as a black man, I understand why people are upset about it. And, and when I say people, I do mean Black people, because I always have to say that. Because if you're upset on our behalf, don't do that. <laughs> like, to people who are upset on the behalf of Black people, like, if we we get what the scene is conveying, that's like people who are upset at, for us, for Robert Downey Jr. playing a character that plays Blackface in Tropic Thunder. You know, it's, it's sort of those things. This, like you said, but John, you brought it up earlier. He yeah. gets a lot of the silly shit out the way. Because... Uh-huh. In a minute, it's about to get real serious when we hear about Mandingo fighting and what that is and then see it. Yeah. Like, it goes from funny and quirky. They're going to have those moments, but all those moments die down immensely to when it gets
0: real. Yeah. So I have complicated thoughts and i'm trying to figure out how to express them the first one is one of the objections i've seen which i think is definitely ridiculous is yeah. people saying this doesn't make sense because the clan didn't actually exist until after the civil war which is true but that doesn't mean there wasn't horrible terrifying things being acted upon people before the civil war that's a ridiculous objection i have zero objection to handling very serious things in a very silly tone i mean i like I like the producers, Mel Brooks. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I like as a Jewish guy, yeah, make fun of the fucking Nazis. I think that is a, one of the great weapons we have to yeah. tear down assholes. So I don't have any mm-hmm. problem with that. I don't really have any problem with any of the tones that exist in this movie even though they're very different. I think my problem is the range of tones is that I get I have a problem with the shifts. And so this tone got, it gets too silly for me and it throws me out of the movie. This feels like a scene from Blazing Saddles, you know, oh, you know, yeah. which, you know, which Blazing Saddles, I still kind of go, we, I think maybe we have to do that movie, although it's a complicated movie to deal with today. But yeah. like, I, it's just, it just throws me out. And this is my, you know, this is the same thing I felt in Inglorious Bastards. And it's a similar thing I feel once upon a time in Hollywood is it's the combinations of things it's not any objection to any individual one i think if i saw this scene as a sketch i think it seems hilarious yeah oh no totally you know Mm -hmm. it just doesn't feel like where it should be for me in the movie Mm -hmm. but anyway we have this whole argument about the the masks and then or the hoods and then we they decide big Daddy's like we're just gonna put them on and they spot what they think is django underneath the wagon of course it's not it's a trick and Schultz says, Alfida's in. This is a huge stunt. Yeah. I was
2: like, this is a one this is a one time done. Yeah. This is this is oh, the, yeah. we gotta get it we gotta get it
0: right on this go. Yeah. So one of the things I saw Quentin say is that he is really, really proud that they got the humane sticker uh, that no horses were harmed, which is why it's really prominent. And Usually that's buried in the credits near the end. And it's, it's one of the very first credits you see at the end of this movie. The guy who was the stunt coordinator is a guy named Jeff Dashnaw. Who people knew as Dash. And Dash is part of a whole stunt man family. In fact, a whole bunch of the horse guys that are on this movie is multiple generations. There would be like a grandfather, father, and a son all working this film doing these stunts. Some of these guys, their families go back to doing Westerns with John Wayne in the 30s. Wow. Like that's how cooked up these people are to doing horse stunts on film. Wow. And doing a big explosion. And doing a big explosion where horses are going to go down yeah. and doing it safely is really, really hard. Like it used to be that they would hobble horses, like they would intentionally injure them to have them go down. They're not going to do that. And and when they're having their conversations uh, with Quentin, he, you know, Dash goes up to Quentin. It's like, well, how many horses do you really want to go down? We have 30, 35 horses here. And Quentin goes, man, if seven could go down, that'd be great. And so <laughs> they go... And so Dash goes, well, we can't know. I mean, because when a big explosion happens, you can't know how that horse is going to react. And so, yes, they can make the horse fall and train it to do that thing. But to train it to do that thing when this huge explosion happens, who knows? So what he said, well, if we want seven to go down, we're going to train 15 to go down, knowing that maybe we'll get eight. You know? Wow. so they do the explosion, and of course they practice this over and over again. They they rehearse it, they rehearse it, they rehearse it, they got everything set up, they get ready to do the explosion, they do the explosion. Fourteen horses went down. Oh shit. And, and, and to be really clear, while they work really hard to make sure they're not injuring these horses, you know who does get hurt? The humans. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. No way for a big horse to fall down when you're on top of the horse without some, at least some bruises. This hurts.
2: That just sounds, it just sounds painful. Just. Yeah. (laughs) It's a horse on me. Oh my God.
3: Have you ever been on a horse? Yes. Sure. Those are scary creatures. As much as I love them and I, and I am the outlaw and I enjoy riding the horses when you feel the weight and the power of a horse, it is it can scare you, man. Because that thing takes off, you were just holding on for dear life.
2: You learned that the phrase "horsepower" is a real thing. <laughs> oh
0: yeah, exactly. It's, it's a great.
3: real thing. <laughs> that is why Jay is a fantastic stand-up comedian, ladies and gentlemen. That was great.
0: <laughs> there was a summer camp I was at as a kid where I rode horses a lot, and mm. for some reason they had given me the uh, a horse that had an issue with another horse. And they oh, were like, oh, look, it's all fine. Just don't go, you know, around Seabiscuit or whatever his name That's was. They
3: gave you the Hatfield horse to the
0: McCoy horse. They gave you a horse time- to get beef with another horse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so there's this one time where <laughs> first the the my horse saw that other horse and they were coming towards each other. And my horse reared up, you know, like the two oh, front shit going in the air. And I'm like. And it, it might have looked cool, but it was scary as hell. And then later, the other horse kicked my horse, <laughs> but actually kicked me, kicked my ankle in the stirrup. <clears throat> Didn't break my ankle, <clears throat> but horses kick hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, got the motherfucker. You <laughs> <laughs> ran this bitch-ass horse. You ran me. Yeah, that was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Motherfucker! <laughs> I mean, is there a career where you could just do horse voices? That's really, I mean, that's really
2: good. Like you ride the horse, like so. You do that, you good, buddy. Oh shit! Here come Earl.
1: <laughs> All right.
0: This is a whole YouTube channel. I think you need to set up our talk videos. It's good stuff. Yep. You could do lip sync on horses. It's a whole <laughs> thing. <laughs> Just angry horses. Just angry horses. Um. Anyway, but we're aiming again at Big Daddy, and he offers the rifle to Django. He says, would you care to? And he's riding away. He's getting away. The sound design, the way he shot it, the use of slow-mo, and we're only mm-hmm. looking at the horse's legs. We're not seeing Big Daddy it's like you hear that bullet going. We hear it hit and then the body falls into frame. It's just beautiful. Then it says, I got him. Yep.
3: Yeah, that's right.
0: The kids are natural. I think well now we have the stages. You know, we talked about the stages when we first met Django. Yeah. But now he killed two of the Brittle brothers and now takes this guy out with a rifle. A hard rifle shot. Yeah. But, you know, I think Schultz has a whole other set of feelings about him. He can hit a moving target. Yeah. yeah. And again, I go, has he ever fired a rifle before? Is this his first shot? Kid's are natural. Are we Mary suing him, uh, Jay? Is that what's
2: going on here? Uh, God damn it. We'll never. And that's the thing. If we are, no one would ever label him as such. Because out of <laughs> nowhere. Exactly. Because out of nowhere. You're right. I mean, let's just be honest. You're right. Yeah. This, this is a dude whose whole life has been slavery. The, the best thing out of his life right. he has is had his wife and he just wants his wife back. Now all of a sudden he gets a gun and he's proficient with it. Now, don't get me wrong. we People I mean, say, well, what about the training? We'll see something later when he per- perfects his aim and accuracy. But before
0: yeah. then, you don't see that. Well, and even in that training, it's not like he was ever bad. Right. He just got better. Yeah. You know, like well, I think, I mean, we're about to get to this scene, which is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, which is this discussion of Siegfried and Brumhilde. And this is a classic hero. This is yeah. like, this is King Arthur. This is Lancelot. This is, right. you know, this isn't the story of someone who trains to be a great hero. This is a story who someone who is a great hero. Mm-hmm. Again, it's later, they're eating by firelight and Django asks. How you know Brumhilda's first masters
2: was German? Brunhilde is the name of a character in the
0: most popular of all the German legends. It's a story about Brunhilde, And I love the way Django brightens up at this. Because this is his wife. This is the woman he loves. And he says, Do you know it?" Well, every German knows that story. And I love that Django, like, sits down in front of him like a kid at story time. But that's because that's a thing.
2: It was a thing in slavery. The one thing that Mm. the, the kids and stuff had was to be told stories. You know, remember, there is no real entertainment. There is no, there is no music for the slaves right. in their back houses. The only music, if you're a, if you're a house slave, you hear it. But the slaves, they were told stories to one another. Remember, some of the stories even were the codes. Mm. The stories and the songs were codes to how to get to freedom. So to hear the story, it's one thing he remembered. So he was cool with hearing a story, and it helps. Yes,
0: it's about Brumhilda, and of course, the story of Brumhilda is a metaphor for the story of our Brumhilda. She was a daughter of Wutan, god of all
1: gods. Her father is really mad at her. So he puts her on top of the
2: mountain.
1: It's a German legend there's always going to be a mountain in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. And he puts a fire-breathing dragon there to guard the mountain. And he surrounds her in a circle of hellfire. And there.
0: Brunhilde shall remain. That's Candyland. Yep. You know? Yeah. And there are dragons and there is hellfire surrounding her. Unless
1: a hero arises brave enough to save her.
0: I love what Jamie Foxx does throughout this whole scene, and it's so endearing and sweet. And he says,
2: Does a fellow rise?"
0: Yes, Django. As a matter of fact, he does. A fellow named Siegfried. Does Siegfried save him? Quite spectacularly so. The clarity of this metaphor, yeah. the fact that not only is Schultz suddenly seeing Django as Siegfried, mm-hmm. but Django is seeing himself as Siegfried, you know. He scales the mountain because he's not afraid of it. He
1: slays a dragon because he's not afraid of him. And he walks
2: through hellfire because Brunilde's worth it. You know, yeah. you know, that's when he relates to Siegfried at that moment. He's like, I know how he feels, because he'd walk through hellfire for his Broomhilda.
0: And Schultz says... I think I'm just starting to realize that. It's funny, when John, when we had our, our, our some more general conversation about Quentin, and yeah. I said, in general, I don't find him moving. I find Reservoir Dogs moving. Yeah. But most of his movies, I'm not feeling like teary-eyed.
3: Yeah.
0: This fucking scene and this relationship might be the most moving thing to me in all of Tarantino's movies.
3: Wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, And you've got two incredible actors in Jamie and... Um, Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Right, uh, bringing it to life. But I also think the other um, person in this equation, who we've seen only in flashbacks, and when she shows up, I think the love they have for each other and the um, just dedication to each other is another aspect of this relationship that I think we're going to explore and is also one of the best relationships he's ever created in any of his movies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For, with very little screen time.
3: Yes. Yeah. That's,
0: scary. that's the That's the genius of Gary Washington. And then he asked this question. How do you like the bounty hunting business? Kill white folks and they pay you for it? What's not to like? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's great. Now I have to admit we make a good team.
2: Thought you was mad at me for killing Big John and Lil Raj.
1: Yeah, on that occasion you were tad overzealous, but normally that's a good thing. How'd you like to partner up for the winter?
0: Has Schultz ever had a partner? No. I don't think so. Nope. I don't think so either. Nope. I think the Django-Schultz friendship Hmm. is one of those they meet and they just, they sink. You know, totally different backgrounds, huge disparity in education, huge disparity in you, uh, everything about their lives, and yet they get each other and go, Yes, with mm-hmm. each other. I think that's part of what me- moves me so much about it. Well,
2: also, you, I'm sorry, real quick, Steve. You think about these bounty hunters, even though that's not what they're, they weren't called back in that time, but right. during this, yeah. bounty hunters are a solo gig. It's a yeah. one person mm-hmm. gig. Right. right, right, right. You're this person going to get these different bad guys, right? You're dealing with all this getting these different desperados, but you found this one person. That you trust. Yep. You trust, and out of all people to trust, a former slave. Yep. Because you know his story now. What you mean, partner?
1: You work with me through the winter till the snow melts. I give you a third of my bounties.
0: Which, by the way, that seems like a generous offer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For a guy who's never done this before. When
1: the snow melts. I'll take you to Greenville myself, and we'll find where they sent your wife. Why do you care what happened to me? And first thing he says is... I've never given anybody their freedom before, and now that I have, I feel vaguely responsible for you. And then this next part of the line, I love. Plus, when a German meets a real-life secret, that's kind of a big deal. As a German, I'm obliged to help you on your quest to rescue your beloved Brunhilde.
0: That, I believe, is the only time in a, Qu- a Quentin Tarantino movie has made me cry. That line. Wow. It really hits me because I just love this relationship so much. Yeah. Let
3: me ask a Steve Morris question. Do it. Steve, Jay. Yeah. Yes. Do you think that in this moment, because he knows the story and these legends so well, Schultz has glimpsed the possibility that he will not survive this encounter? It's funny. I Right as you start to ask the question, I
0: started to – I actually guessed that it was going to be something like that, and I suddenly went, shit, I should – I have failed in research because I don't really know the story of Siegfried and Broomhilde oh, well. To, well enough to know yeah. if there is – if if Siegfried has a friend who dies in yeah. the story, yeah. you know? I like think that's I've, the thing, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you my gut reaction to your question uh-huh. is – I. So, I think that Schultz enjoys being a bounty hunter. Right. I also think that being a bounty hunter is certainly on the moral scale not the most knight in shining armor ish. You know what I mean? It's right, a pretty right. dirty business. I think he sees in Django an opportunity to do something that is a hundred percent good. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe maybe worth dying for. That's my that's my initial reaction to your question. Okay. Sounds good.
2: Like I, I agree. If if he knows the whole story, like he hears the beautiful part of the story, but I don't know if there is a part of the story that says if they like okay, Siegfried res-
0: he rescues Broomhilda. Yeah, that seems like the happily ever after. But by, by the way, as we're talking about Siegfried and Broomhilda, of course I might be hearing some Wagner in my head, but all I am picturing is Bugs Bunny on a giant horse <laughs> and Elmer Fudd a helmet going.
1: Oh, Hilda, you're so far away. Yes, I know it. I can't help it. Oh, Brunhilde,
0: be my love. <laughs> that is because that's Bugs Bunny is playing Hilda in that. Yes, yeah. and and I think at that point, as they have agreed, they've shook shaken hands, and Django is going to become a bounty hunter. This is as good a time as any to end part one of our exploration of Django Unchained. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this incredible film. You could visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the Cinephiles. We are Cine underscore Files on Twitter, Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. If you haven't subscribed to the show, I think it's time for you to subscribe to the show. I know it's a big step. I understand there's a lot of pressures in your life, but I think this is a move you might want to make. As John said, on the beginning of the show, you should also think about supporting us on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where we put out cinephile shorts, we do movie watch-alongs, and you can even, if you pledge at the right tier, suggest films that we're going to cover on the show. If you haven't seen Django Unchained, I think it's a weird choice that you've listened to us this far, but you should go right to cinephiles.net <laughs> and buy or stream Django Unchained along with every other movie we've ever done. And if you want to reach me, you can do it on SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and
3: of course Enterprise Incidents for all your Star Trek needs. John, how would folks reach you? You always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash John Roca says, and my other podcasts, uh, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mic that are out there for you to enjoy. And Jay Washington.
0: Not only has this been a tremendous pleasure, but I believe that I heard the finest horse voice, angry horse voice impression <laughs> I've ever heard. At least on the cinephiles, this has been so great having you. If people wanted to reach you or follow you or see your work, how would they go about doing that? Oh, thank you guys for your- <laughs> you, know,
2: <laughs> you, see you. are the best, John. I love you. <laughs> uh- <laughs> 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 yeah thank you guys seriously for having me part of this this has been a great discussion like i said this is one this is one of my favorite movies to watch and definitely to talk about but uh please follow me tiktok and instagram primarily at mr j washington m-r-j-a-y W-A-S-H-I-N-G-T-O-N. Check out the Mad Titan podcast everywhere you get your podcast from. I get you caught up on all the things happening in Marvel and D.C. live-action cinematic universes. It's Barbershop Talk for Nerds. Come on in the convo and check out the Black Boy Content Club podcast. Myself, Chris Burns, and Moses Prim. We talk about everything in pop culture and just some of the most wildest stuff ever. Uh, You can search for us everywhere at BBC Club Podcast. And check us out visually on the Moses Prim
0: YouTube channel. I think that is a lot of stuff for everyone to check out. That should take up a whole bunch of your time next week, and we'll give you time to come back the week after that to, as we continue, I don't know about conclude, but continue our exploration (laughs) of Django Unchained right here on the Cinefons.